Welcome to the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage listeners, especially our Baptist listeners, to think deeply and clearly. Think about their faith, think about their church, think about their life, and think about God. We're analytic, Baptist, and confessional. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy the episode. Welcome once again to the London Lyceum. I am Jordan Stefaniak, and I am uh, next to my good friend, Brandon Askew. And we are very excited today to have a, an excellent guest with us, uh, Dr. Steve Weaver. And I guess we'll let you introduce yourself a little bit. Um, I met you uh, through Southern Seminary. I took a course on Jonathan Edwards, and I think you and Dr. Tom Nettles co-taught that course. So we became friends from that. And we're excited to talk to you about a little bit about Baptist history, uh, along with uh, confessions and catechism. So why don't you introduce yourself? You can tell us a little bit maybe about your family or your background, education or your church or anything like that. Well, thank you, Jordan and Brandon. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And I remember meeting you, Jordan, in the course and your paper especially stood out and uh, uh, kind of rose one of the best papers i I've uh, graded and been a part of uh, receiving, so uh, you certainly got my attention then, and uh, thankful to develop the friendship and relationship going forward, and thankful for how the Lord's using you. Oh, thanks. Uh, I am, yeah, Jordan, uh, and Brandon, I'm sure you're a great guy as well. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, I uh, serve as a senior pastor at Farmdale Baptist Church in Frankfort, Kentucky. I've been here for 11 years now, and I have a wife and uh, six children. The oldest is 20, and the youngest is eight. So we have uh, a lot of different adventures going on all the time. Uh, so that's that's a exciting, exciting time. Uh, I also have a ministry that I do here in Frankfurt at our state capitol. I'm a part of a national ministry called Capital Commission, where we do expositional Bible studies and provide prayer support in a nonpartisan way and nonpolitical way for legislators and staff at the uh, at various state capitals. And obviously, I'm at the one in Kentucky, Frankfurt, and so I do that ministry. That's kind of a weekly ministry that's going on. Uh, doing Bible studies there for staff or legislators or whoever I can and uh, ministering to spiritual needs there. And then I also do some adjunct teaching. I'm an adjunct professor of church history at Southern Seminary, and I've been doing that off and on for several years. Just signed another contract for another year of doing that, teaching uh, Baptist history courses mostly. All right. Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, I was looking at your um, dissertation focus, and it looks like you wrote on uh, the particular Baptist from the 17th century, Hercules Collins. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you decided to study about Collins and what stood out about him? Yes, I uh, I sent an email. I just pulled it up a few moments before this podcast because I thought that question might come up. I sent an email in 2006 and through it was sent through Gmail, so I still have access to it. So I just uh, did a quick search with some key terms and found that email that I sent to Michael Haken. Michael Haken is a professor of church history uh, at Southern Seminary, but at the time he was the principal of Toronto Baptist Seminary, and I had finished my MDiv in uh, 2005 at Southern. Uh, I did most of that through driving back and forth in extension centers, so I wasn't on campus other than going driving back and forth for 
for classes. Uh, I was pastoring a church, a small church in East Tennessee. I wanted to continue education, but wasn't ready to relocate. I felt called to stay in the local church where I was. So I found out about uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary, and it appeared they had a THM that could be done through distance uh, in terms of you could fulfill the requirements of it. So I reached out to Dr. Haken, had never met him, reached out to him by email and asked about that program, and he confirmed that indeed it could be done uh, with only a few trips to Toronto. And also I could combine with some uh, courses at Southern that he was teaching then as a visiting professor that I could combine some uh, doctoral seminars and transfer those in. So that's, that's what I ended up doing. So I asked him in the course of that conversation, what are some areas, what's some things that need to be done? And he sent me a list of several things. Uh, one of those items on the list was a study of a minister named Hercules Collins. And I was interested in almost everything on the list that he sent, but uh, that stood out in terms of uh, first the name, just an unusual name, uh, Hercules. And then uh, I, you know, I, you know, Googled him, I guess, uh, and uh, did a search and found out some things about Hercules Collins, that he was a pastor and I was serving a pastoral ministry and intended to continue to do so. He was a pastor. He experienced persecution, uh, was imprisoned for his uh, uh, gospel witness in a time of uh, persecution of those outside of the Church of England, uh, late 17th century. Uh, he wrote a catechism uh, that he, t- you know, at that point, all I knew is that there was a catechism under his name. I found out more about that later, exactly how that came to be. Uh, and we'll probably talk about that in a few minutes, so I'll say that. But uh, uh, he also wrote books on bapti- uh, baptism and defending believers' baptism by immersion uh, from the scriptures. And uh, that was something that was important and intriguing to me uh, as a pastor and thinking through uh, making those same kinds of arguments and and, uh, uh, understandings in a current situation. And then um, he wrote a book on the education of ministers and uh, more specifically on preaching, uh, hermeneutics and, and preaching, homiletics is what we would call it today. But uh, that was also something that was appealing to me. I wanted to read and find out more about. Uh, He was also a co-signer of the Second London Confession of Faith, what we call the Second London Confession, which was written in 1677, uh, reprinted in 1688, adopted by the General Assembly in 1689, and recommended to the churches, uh, particular Baptist churches. That was something also that was intriguing and interesting to me. So all of those things, I think, combined to uh, make that uh, an area that I wanted to do more research. And uh, so I did. And uh, the product of that uh, THM research that I did was uh, to read all of Collins' works and uh, to call them for selections that could be used in a series of books that Dr. Haken was editing then Profiles in Reformed Spirituality, uh, I think is the title of the series, uh, published through Reformation Heritage Books. And so what he allowed me to do, and and this is typical of how gracious Dr. Haken is in giving opportunities uh, to people who, like me, did not 
<laughs> well, I won't speak on any other people he's given opportunities <laughs> to. They're more deserving than I am. But I was not deserving of, uh, of essentially having a book co-edited uh, with Dr. Haken that came out of that research. And me, I was a hillbilly Tennessee pastor. So uh, pretty amazing opportunity that the Lord, and, and through email correspondence, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it's just interesting how all that came about. Uh, but it says more about uh, the graciousness of Dr. Haken than it does about the ability of Steve Weaver. <laughs> well, we both, I know, love Dr. Haken and his works, and he's uh, been very helpful, I think, for both of us. Um, one thing that stood out to me when I, when I look at Hercules Collins is his use of the Orthodox Catechism that you mentioned. And I'm just kind of curious, do you feel like that is something that the average church member should be using, something along uh, the line of a catechism like that? Or is there usage for that in uh, the average church member's home uh, today? Well, I think catechisms have been very important in Baptist life. That's pretty much undeniable. Uh, Dr. Nettles uh, did a book several years ago on uh, Dr. Tom Nettles who's a professor at Southern Seminary, recently uh, retired, now a senior professor. But he did a book on uh, the use of catechisms in Baptist life. And so he's shown, like he's done with many topics, like the doctrines of grace in Baptist history and and uh, the doctrine of inerrancy in Baptist life, has shown that, those, uh, that catechisms were widely received and used by Baptists by a variety of Baptists throughout Baptist history. And uh, we republished that book. He uh, was gracious. He was my supervisor, uh, doctoral supervisor. I ended up being, I thought Dr. Haken would be, and it ended up being Dr. Nettles, although Dr. Haken was kind of an unofficial supervisor for me. But one of the things when he republished his uh, book on uh, teaching truth, training hearts, that study of catechisms in Baptist life, he allowed me to include... Uh, section on the Orthodox Catechism, a chapter, uh, historical introduction, and then the text of the Catechism itself. And so uh, that was uh, another very gracious thing done for me by a great scholar that allowed me to be a part of that work. But uh, th that Catechism, I think, is, is useful because it is essentially the Heidelberg Catechism that has been baptized. In other words, <laughs> the... Uh, Sections on baptism have been corrected <laughs> from a Baptist perspective. Right. So uh, that uh, that catechism is a widely used, very helpful catechism. Has been for now, I think 1563. I'm just uh, from memory here. I think is when that catechism was first uh, published and released. And uh, for these uh, nearly 500 years, 450 years. Uh, that catechism has been uh, very comforting to the people of God. It's it's a unique catechism. In, uh, well, in this way, it's not unique. It's Trinitarian in its structure. Mm. Uh, so there's three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that reflects, obviously, historic Christian orthodoxy. Uh, but it is uh, unique in uh, how it seems to have provided comfort to God's people over the centuries. Uh, it begins uh, with the famous question, what is your only hope in life and death, and gives a uh, beautiful gospel-centered answer to that. And so for that reason, the Heidelberg Catechism has been gr greatly valued by Christians, continues to be, 
And um, this Baptist version, I believe, is helpful as well. It is a little more wordy. I mean, there's, there's, when you study catechisms, there's, uh, there are some that are kind of short answer. Usually we use those for children, right. uh, which are easier to memorize and repeat. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, anything can be memorized, but it's not, it's not given uh, to that really as easily. Uh, there are longer paragraph, sometimes pages, answers, especially uh, in the sections on baptism that Collins added, uh, explaining what is baptism and what it is not and wh- why. Uh, and, and there's partially added in there uh, the argument for through the regulative principle for uh, immersion of believers being the only authorized form of baptism uh, that should be part of our worship as Christians. Awesome. So I'm curious if someone wanted to get their hands on just the Orthodox Catechism, is there an actual book out there for just that, or is it included in a larger work that they can get their hands on? Well, you can get it in the book I mentioned, uh, Teaching Truth, Training Hearts, the new edition, uh, which was done by Founders Press and Dr. Nettles, primary author with Steve Weaver. And then uh, Dr. Haken and I actually published an edited version of the Orthodox Catechism with Reformed Baptist Academic Press. And so that is one that has been made a little more accessible to the modern reader. And so that's available. It's maybe about 10, 10 bucks to get that. Reformed Baptist Academic Press, you should be able to find it on Amazon. Uh, it's simply titled An Orthodox Catechism with Hercules Collins as the author. And then you'll see uh, Dr. Haken and myself as editors of that. Uh, not only did we modernize things like spelling and make a few uh, uh, edits in terms of readability, but we also removed a couple of sections that would have been uh, controversial for a modern reader and probably not as uh, useful if those were included, uh, namely the section on laying on of hands. Collins was uh, in a minority position among particular Baptists. Benjamin Keach also held this view that, uh, uh, that it was commanded, expected, that, uh, that believers upon baptism would have uh, prayer made over them uh, with the imposition of hands. And so that uh, is something that Keach held to. Collins also held to that. And he added that into this catechism. It wasn't in the Heidelberg, obviously. Uh, We removed it because we thought most churches, as they use that, uh, weren't going to be practicing that and would find that unhelpful. So there were a few edits to make that. uh, We added numbers, you know, to... uh, enable easy uh, usage. So we just made a, did several edits to make it more accessible to a modern reader with the hopes that it would be used in church context and uh, context of individuals. And uh, that has happened to some degree. That's, that's great stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Yes, that's really helpful. Uh, yeah. So a, a moment ago, you mentioned the 1689 confession. If you would just maybe take a moment and tell us why is it so important that Baptists be a confessional people? And maybe a second part um, to that question is a little more personal. Um, how did you yourself uh, become a confessional Baptist? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, one one of the things that really hits you in the face as you study Baptist history is how important confessions of faith have been for Baptists. 
uh, Baptists do not use confessions of faith in the way that uh, people often define creeds. I don't use this definition myself, but I will make the distinction. We don't use confessions really imposed from a civil authority uh, onto a people, but instead Baptists have always freely as individuals, as ministers, uh, through their ordination process, as churches, voluntarily, as associations, as bodies, larger bodies, uh, conventions, and other forms of denomination of Baptist life, have always freely adopted confessions of faith to summarize what they believe the Bible teaches. And that, uh, that is so essential to Baptist uh, identity and DNA because what it means to be a part, what it means to have a Baptist church is not because you are the members or the children of members of a church or because you live in a particular parish that doesn't make you part of a Baptist church. What makes you a part of a Baptist church is uh, repentance of sin, faith in Jesus Christ, and uh, obedience to Christ in believers' baptism. And so then on what basis do Baptist churches exist? We can't point to some kind of magisterial authority. We can't point to uh, any kind of succession in terms of, uh, uh, of our parents or belonging to a church because we are the family of believers or the children of believers or because we live in a particular area. What a Baptist church is united around are really two documents, a confession of faith and a church covenant. The confession of faith says this is what we agree to believe and to practice together. And this is, and the covenant says this is how we agree to live together. And so there's no other foundation for a Baptist church to exist unless we're saying the reason we're together is because we believe some things in common and we're agreeing to live out the principles of the New Testament uh, in this particular way. And so uh, in that way, I would say confessions of faith are vital uh, to our Baptist DNA, our Baptist identity, because we really don't have an explanation for why a church exists apart from it is believers coming together with a common set of beliefs. Those beliefs are expressed in a confession of faith. Uh, and then, you know, denominationally, uh, it has been important for Baptists as associations, as a group of churches uniting together to say, these are the churches that we are in fellowship with. How do we define that? We define that in terms of a confession of faith that says, the, these are the areas in which we are in agreement. Um, so that, that would be my uh, partial answer to that. There's a lot more to say about how those have been used to defend against error, uh, to teach doctrine, to uh, promote unity, true unity, based on uh, shared doctrinal beliefs. And so there's a lot more to say about that, but uh, that would be my answer to the first part of that question. And then in terms of how I personally became uh, a confessional Baptist, I became a confessional Baptist uh, probably through the process of uh, kind of a parallel process of being a pastor and trying to teach our church what it is that unites us. It's not that we're all here in Kentucky. I don't, you know, I use this often. We're not 
all uh, University of Kentucky fans. Praise God. We're not all Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> we're, not, <laughs> we're not all stamp collectors. Uh, what unites us is not, uh, you know, is not the things that the world might look to as uh, affinity groups, but we're united as a body of believers because we have a common confession of faith in Jesus Christ, and we have agreed, we exist as a body of believers that have agreed that we hold these truths in common. And uh, so that has, you know, that's been important for me as a pastor from the very beginning understanding that along with how Baptist churches developed in the 17th century and how they were formed. If you, you study Baptist churches as I often do in Kentucky in the early 1800s, what's the very first thing they do? They adopt a confession of faith and a church covenant because otherwise they don't have any explanation for what it is they're doing and why they're getting together. Uh, and so uh, those things, you know, serving as a pastor trying to understand, help our members understand why we're together, what our unity is based on, and then how we receive new members, what is expected of new members. Well, we're asking them, uh, in addition to their faith in Christ and their uh, obedience to Christ in baptism and their repentance from sin, but they're uniting with this particular congregation because they, they believe the doctrines that are held in common by this group of believers and which will be taught uh, freely, and they're agreeing to unite together with a body of believers where they can live out the principles of the New Testament, the one another's of the New Testament. That's essentially what our church covenant does. That That's very helpful. And I'm kind of curious, you know, as we're talking about confessions, we're, you know, we've mentioned a lot of uh, older documents, um, and I think both of us are in Southern Baptist life, and the SBC, I guess, is, you know, the 2000 Baptist faith mes- message is what would be considered the confession. So how do you think, you know, contemporary churches, especially in the SBC, should, um, I guess, work with older confessions that have been time-tested, like the Second London Confession of Faith, and then the Baptist Faith and Message? Should we be using one over the other? Should we be using both? How does that look in the normal church context? Well, every individual church, as you men know, uh, is autonomous and is able to freely adopt whichever confession of faith they believe uh, is the best summary of Scripture teaching. And so uh, Baptist churches, there are Southern Baptist churches, so we're speaking in the Southern Baptist context. Southern Baptist churches are, uh, there's a variety of confessions of faith that have been adopted. Uh, On the national level, in terms of our denomination, what has been adopted by the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention in 2000 in Orlando was a confession of faith, which we call the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, uh, actually, we just simply call it the Baptist Faith and Message because it is the uh, current uh, uh, iteration of that, although there were two former in 60, uh, 25 and 63, 1925 and 1963. Uh, but we, but, but that, that confession functions on the uh, denominational level, level in terms of our entities to hold those entities accountable. And it's not imposed... Uh, from the top down on the churches. It is, uh, it is a means of accountability for our institutions, uh, seminaries, mission boards, publishing houses, etc., uh, that they're held accountable to. 
and it therefore then reflects a way that we as groups of churches come together saying, okay, I, I believe more uh, than the Baptist faith and message, but I don't believe less than what it says. And I can cooperate together, even though I might have some preferences in my local church and how uh, certain doctrines are emphasized and practically how some of these things are played out. Uh, but I can unite with other Baptists who at least hold these things in common, and we can do missions and evangelism together. And so the Baptist faith and message functions that way for our denomination. Uh, for uh, In terms of how other confessions can work alongside that, uh, one, there should be a recognition that the Baptist faith and message did not appear in a vacuum. Obviously, I've already said the 2000 was preceded by the 63 and 25, so this is not the first. Uh, so there's a history there. And then that confession, the 25 confession, uh, comes out of the uh, uh, abstract, uh, excuse me, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And the New Hampshire Confession of Faith is, is also standing on the shoulders of previous Baptist confessions of faith, taking us back to the uh, confessions of the 17th century and reflecting the orthodoxy of some of the early creeds, the apostolic, Nicene, Constantinopolitan creeds, uh, all of that is building together. And so there's, at the very least, there's a history, there's a lineage of the way uh, these confessions or where these confessions came from. Uh, and the language, I mean, it's, it's uh, that language, a lot of that language, especially when you think about the doctrine of the Trinity, the person work of Jesus Christ, that uh, the, that language has been hammered out over centuries and has been held in, in various confessional forms. Uh, churches can, individual churches, uh, do not they do not have to, uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, they do not have to have the Baptist faith and message as their confession of faith, but they have to have a confession or practice that is not contradictory to the Baptist faith and message 2000. Uh, or a, not a violation of, of it. And so that's, that's the way, if you look at the current, uh, the, the Constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention was revised just a few years ago uh, to strengthen what it means to be a cooperating church. Hmm. And uh, I think it's a very healthy uh, progression. It used to be, if you give, I think, $250 and your church does not affirm homosexuality, you're in. That's crazy. Uh, that, <laughs> Setting the bar, uh, huh? That... There, well, that that uh, that two fifty was back with. Uh, uh, it may have been a little bit more than that, but it was two fifty to five hundred dollar, I think, uh, threshold, and you would be considered a cooperating church. Well, that hadn't been changed for a hundred years, and so there was a revision of the constitution that happened just a few years ago, uh, and that increased that amount uh, to something like eight thousand dollars, which some people are very uh, concerned about. Uh, in terms of, uh, well, each Southern Baptist church gets two messengers automatically. And then for each $1,000, uh, they get an additional messenger or for each percentage point that they give to the cooperative program out of their budget. And so it's still, I mean, it's still very accessible, I think, because uh, if you're thinking about percentage point, you know, you get two and then if you give 8%, then you have 10 messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention. So that's uh, still pretty accessible for churches, regardless of the size. 
uh, in my opinion. But the reason I really like that change, uh, not I'm not necessarily excited about the money change or the percentage change, but I'm excited about uh, that there was language strengthened. It kind of slipped under the radar, and I don't think most Baptists have yet uh, realized it, that, uh, that the language was changed uh, from not merely affirming homosexuality, but also uh, uh, beliefs that were contrary to the uh, uh, conventions that adopted confession of faith, and which includes then as an example, churches that affirm homosexuality. Uh, but uh, but that, that strengthened that language in a way that still doesn't mandate a confession in a way that that hinders uh, the autonomy of the local church to adopt uh, from a variety of confessions or to write their own, but also uh, says it does mean something to be Southern Baptist. And if your church practices uh, or has beliefs that contradict the denomination's confession of faith, then you're not, you will not be considered a uh, cooperating church. And so uh, that, that, that's really helpful. I didn't know that that had, took place. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much under the radar, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's probably why it happened because it was under the radar. Uh, the attention was on the financial aspect of it, but I'm thankful. I don't know anything about the process of how that happened, but I'm thankful uh, that there was there were people in the room at least, or people speaking into that process, uh, who uh, had an opportunity there to strengthen that confessional language and. Uh, it's not many people don't think that's strong enough. I mean, I would, you know, I, I would be able to, you know, affirm a lot more than that. But when it comes to a large, diverse group uh, that we're trying to unite together, uh, I'm happy with that. And uh, I think that's a, a very positive move. Uh, it's probably as far as uh, we could go with that in terms of our context, um, in terms of having that kind of accountability with the uh, historic Baptist understanding of the autonomy of the local church. And so uh, uh, I, I will, let me just back up and say, I think you can have uh, denominations and associations that require a particular confession of faith and it not violate the autonomy of the local church. Uh, because the churches then would voluntarily, you know, just like it doesn't violate the individual soul liberty or freedom of a member to join a local church that has a particular confession of faith, it wouldn't violate the autonomy of the local church to voluntarily associate with a denomination where there was a prescribed confession of faith. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't really think that's an issue of autonomy, but in terms of the way that's understood and practiced, it, it's not going to get any stronger than that probably in Baptist life. I think what's helped uh, probably in this issue are some of the issues that we're facing in terms of racism and homosexuality and the acceptance of uh, those things. There's kind of you know, two very different issues uh, in my mind, but uh, because of uh, the challenges we're facing there uh, for churches, and now, uh, and now even more recently, uh, discussions about sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches, uh, it is 
allowing us to realize that we do need to have uh, uh, more standards, maybe not more standards, but a, a way of uh, evaluating church's cooperation. And that isn't a violation of uh, autonomy of the local church, but it is a way of maintaining uh, the beliefs and practices that Southern Baptists want to have. And so as a result of that, I think we're, we're, we have a mechanism in place uh, that allows us to be able to address those issues and also some heretical issues that might arise uh, through the same uh, instrument. Well, th- thank you so much for, for all. I mean, that's that's really helpful stuff. I mean, we've covered a lot here with, you know, from catechisms to confessions and, and now, you know, uh, modern issues with the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. We'll just, we'll let you go here after this uh, final question, but... Um, who is your favorite Baptist theologian? And if the answer to that is Hercules Collins, then give us number two, since we've already uh, mm-hmm. talked about him. So who's your favorite Baptist theologian? And maybe just um, give us uh, one book by that theologian that you can direct us to. Okay, that's a great question. Um, it, I mean, I have uh, affection for Hercules Collins because of the amount of time that I spent with him. And uh, I love him as a uh, pastor theologian. But in terms of my favorite theologian, it would be uh, a Baptist theologian. It would be Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller was in the particular Baptist stream, and uh, he was uh, used by the Lord to combat hyper-Calvinism and antinomianism in his day. And uh, he, he is the theologian behind the modern missionary movement. And so if you think about William Carey and what he did, and he's often celebrated, and rightly so, uh, behind him and alongside him were other men, other faithful pastors. And uh, chief among them, in my opinion, would be Andrew Fuller, who was the secretary of the Baptist Missionary Society from its formation in 1792 until he died in 1815. And uh, he, uh, as Jordan knows, uh, was influenced through uh, the work of Jonathan Edwards and his work on the freedom of the will and his distinction between natural ability and moral ability. And uh, Fuller took that distinction and used that to, uh, to really highlight the responsibility of Christians to take the gospel to all people and for uh, the responsibility that all people have to respond to the gospel and the accountability that they have if they fail to do so. And uh, I don't know if we want to flesh all that out right now, but uh, uh, that, that, that's where Fuller gets that from Edwards. And, uh, and then that continues really in a stream uh, of evangelistic, missionary, Calvinistic uh, approach uh, that is uh, reflected in the ministry of Charles Spurgeon as well. And that, that same distinction. And uh, Spurgeon, I believe, gets that from Fuller, and Fuller gets it from Edwards. But Fuller takes that distinction, kind of a philosophical distinction, and uses it uh, to understand what is the nature of inability that human beings have. Uh, are humans, is, is the inability, inability such that there is no accountability. And by making that distinction between natural and moral, he's able to say that human beings have the natural ability. 
It's not that they do not have the ability with their lips to confess that Jesus is Lord. Uh, they can form those sounds, but they refuse to do so. And so therefore, uh, they are morally accountable for that and therefore responsible uh, for uh, the gospel message. And therefore, the gospel message should be indiscriminately proclaimed to all people. And so in that Calvinistic tradition, uh, he's able to maintain that while also providing a theological underpinning uh, for uh, the proclamation of the gospel to all people, the modern missionary movement. And uh, that was a very important uh, moment in Baptist history uh, because hyper-Calvinism and antinomianism had become very prominent in the early 18th century. Great stuff. So if, if one of our listeners wanted to read one thing from Andrew Fuller, what would you tell them they had to read? Hmm. Well, the, the work, uh, the work that really deals with what I was just describing is the gospel worthy of all acceptation. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, subtitled in, I think the second edition, there's a couple editions of that, but one edition that it's the duty of, of sinners to believe the gospel or something like that. So it's kind of the argument there is in the, uh, in the title, the gospel is worthy of all acceptation and there's a duty responsibility of sinners to believe the gospel message. Uh, the, uh, maybe the best way to get introduced to Fuller and his writings is, uh, his biography or memoir of a fellow pastor, Samuel Pierce, who was kind of like a David Brainerd figure, uh, a man who died young in the, uh, I think by the age of 29, was a British Baptist pastor, uh, very supportive, very passionate, very supportive of the modern missionary movement, very passionate evangelist. Uh, and uh, Fuller's memoir of his life is a very, uh, it, it was kind of in its day what uh, uh, the journal or diary of David Brainerd became and uh, later the, uh, the diary of uh, Jim Elliott. And so it functioned in very similar ways. So that'd be a good way. Then Dr. Haken has a, uh, a little book called uh, The Armies of the Lamb, I believe, that has a biographical introduction and then selections from Fuller's writings. That's another good introduction. Well, so that's, that's awesome, man. We've really enjoyed having you on, uh, Dr. Weaver. We've learned a lot, um, and we're thankful that you've been able to take the time to talk uh, talk with us a little bit about uh, Baptists, uh, Hercules Collins, catechisms, confessions. Uh, I hope our listeners have benefited. I'm sure they have, and uh, we hope to maybe have you on again someday in the future. Definitely. Well, wait till I learn something else, and then maybe I'll have something else to talk about. <laughs> well, that, that, take a while. Yeah. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you for having me. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.